the blessedness and the privilege that's ours this morning is truly a great and grand one as we appreciate the plight of many who perhaps due to illness or otherwise are not able to come together today and many around the world who are perhaps are enduring the sufferings and persecution of others who wish they would not meet. And yet today in the grandeur or the tranquility of this hour, we can offer the homage and reverence and direction to God that He so richly deserves. In Psalm 26, verse 8, in fact, on that occasion we read of the privilege that is this opportunity for worship. He said, I was glad to me when they said unto me, let us go up into the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse number 1. And so it is this morning as we have together hymned these songs of encouragement and adoration to God. And as we have to collectively prayed for His wisdom and direction. May we now open His word and consider a lesson, the title of which is Forgiveness. As we begin to think about some of the matters concerning it, I'd like to first of all direct our attention to some of what we saw last Lord's Day morning. On that occasion, we looked at a lesson entitled simply Repentance. And on that occasion, we learned, in fact, the following very basic consideration of it. We noticed that repentance, as it's utilized in the sacred text, has to do with a change of mind that results in a change of action. Or to say that differently, a change of mind that produces a change in behavior, a change in lifestyle. The reason, in fact, that we ought to draw our attention back to that idea is that the subject of repentance relates to the matter of forgiveness, which is the title of our lesson this morning. So it is for the next few moments I would ask you to consider with me some of the teachings of the Word of God on the matter of forgiveness. And in fact, we mentioned that in our prayer a few moments ago. And quite often as we think about the great benefit of being a Christian, forgiveness perhaps heads that list. Today, what is forgiveness? What is involved in the process of forgiveness? Are there any prerequisites to forgiveness? You and I should be well aware of the answer to all of them, and so let's study them, or at least remind ourselves of what those answers are in the time of our consideration this morning. In fact, as we move through the lesson, I'd like to divide it into three parts. First of all, giving some thought to the definition of forgiveness. If you and I were called upon to use the Bible and define it, what is forgiveness? Secondly, we will look at then the importance of it. How essential is it? How significant is forgiveness of God toward us or of us toward others? And then finally, as we close the lesson, what are the obligations involved in Christian forgiveness? With those basically set before us, let's look first of all at that definition. Let's begin it on this slide, if we might. The idea of forgiveness is a fairly frequent occurring one in the Holy Scriptures. In fact, some 112 times in the nature of the King James Bible, that word forgive or some nature of it, like the word forgiveness or the verb forgiving. Again, 112 times the word itself or some direct derivative of it. However, that alone isn't the most impressive thing, I suppose. For you'll notice that 61 times of them are in the New Testament. Over a half of the occurrences of that word actually are in this new covenant, this blessed and wonderful New Testament based on the character of the Lord's gospel, the efficiency of His blood, and the, that which He wishes us to know in our service to Him today. In addition to that thought, I would ask you to begin to give with me some consideration or reflection 
to that word that's translated in so many instances as the word forgive. I've written it for you in Greek, although, of course, that very nature isn't that terribly significant. It's just that that is the Greek word that so often is translated forgive as the verb forgive. As you'll notice, the definition of it is simply this. Literally, it means to send away, to let go, or to say that differently, to leave. And as we shall see, many of those lexicons, in fact, then tie to that the very nature of forgiveness. So if we had to remember so far, this word forgive, that Greek word means to send away, to let go, to forgive. As we give some reflection to what then that means, let's notice, first of all, some of the ways that that word is used. And I think that'll help us appreciate more thoroughly the usage of it as it means to forgive. I've listed two passages. First of all, in Mark 1, verse 18, in that opening chapter of the gospel according to Mark, we notice that on that instance, Jesus as he was around about the Sea of Galilee, there were two individuals there on that occasion, Peter and his brother Andrew, and Jesus had made call to them. And the text says, they left their nets. In the Greek, that's that same word at other places is translated to forgive. What does it mean there? It means they left them behind. Remember, to send away or to let go, they let go those nets. They left them behind and proceeded to follow the Son of God. In another instance, in John eleven forty four, on this occasion, Jesus had just brought forth Lazarus from the tomb. We remember the developments of that chapter and the encompassing description that's given. The time reaches, though, when the Lord comes where that sepulcher was. He gives commandment, Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus appeared, and you might remember he was still bound in those grave clothes, Jesus said, loose him, loose them, and let him go. That word translated loose is this same word. Send those cloths away. Let those cloths be released, and let Lazarus go free. We notice those two instances, of course, this subject, this word, didn't have anything to do with sins. It had to do with nets on one hand. It had to do with those grave clothes or those grave napkins in another but you would quickly notice that many of the instances in which that word is used are not used with respect to physical things like clothes or nets. It has direct reference to sins. And I've listed a few of them for your thinking. In Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, as we reach near the middle portion of the book of Acts, we find here the Apostle Paul preaching on that first missionary journey. And on that occasion, notice with me the text that therein is said, the instances that therein appear. Be it known unto you, brethren, that through this man, namely the Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Now that's the same Greek word appearing here as a noun. Forgiveness of sins. Notice it wasn't nets, it wasn't clothes, it was sins that were let go, that were sent away. Through Christ, that message was preached to those on that grand occasion of that first missionary journey. Sins were being spoken of as sent away, forgiven. You'll notice with me in yet another occurrence later in the New Testament. In Colossians 1 verse 14, a rather brief text, 
it simply reads as follows. In whom you have forgiveness of sins, even Jesus Christ. You'll notice, in whom we have forgiveness of sins. Again, the same word appears, and it again has reference to sins that are being sent away, sins that are being forgiven. Perhaps in light of that, we have said enough to remind ourselves of the significance of what the basic notion of forgiveness is. It's sending away to where these things are no more encumbering, no more bothering, resisting, no more clouding our path. They've been sent away. They've been forgiven. You'll notice in the Old Testament there seems to be a rather strong hint in the Hebrew word of that same idea. In 1 Kings, the 8th chapter, verses 34 and 36, on that occasion of the dedication of the temple, wherein that extravagant building had just been completed, Solomon was officiating over its dedication, and there in Solomon made the statement as he spoke about his people. He pleaded with God to forgive them, send their sins away when they turned from him. To say all of that brings us then to notice that since forgiveness has been referred to sin here on a number of occasions, let's define sin so that we know what's being discussed, and then let's see what a grand conclusion to this is. 1 John 3 verse 4 still defines sin for us in the following way. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. We have the most concise biblical definition of sin in that one simple passage. It is the transgression of the law of God. It is a violation of the will that God has set forth. And so now we are gaining ever closer reflection on this matter of forgiveness. To this one who thus has violated the law of God, who has transgressed it, we now notice that forgiveness would mean to send that transgression away. To state it as it is near the bottom of that slide, the forgiveness of sins is thus a letting go of them, a sending them away. It is in a way to think about perhaps a comparison to a debt. I think many of us are familiar with what it means to be in financial debt. Perhaps we have borrowed money and we thus owe some amount of money to some agency, perhaps a bank or a credit union, some other kind of financial institution, what would it mean to say that you are forgiven of that debt? Would that not mean that you have been provided the opportunity to have sent the confines of that debt away? You no longer owe a penny. That's what it would mean to forgive that debt. Notice in regard to sin... This infraction of God's will, this transgression of what He has set forth, to have to say then that that sin is forgiven is to send that transgression away and to produce a state that would have existed prior to that transgression. It would be to remake that initial state before you violated that will, before you violated the law of God. To think of it that way, in fact, is what is set before us in the fourth chapter of the Roman letter. In Romans 4, verses 7 and 8, we have, in fact, the following description. I'd invite you to read that with me, perhaps to consider some of the things we've noted in our Wednesday night lessons not too long ago. 
It says, blessed are they whose, trans whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Let's consider thus what is asserted in some of those verbs. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. If sin is not reckoned then to you or to me, that would be that same state as before we would have committed it. For the Lord never marked it against us in the sense of bringing the guilt consequently of it. Forgiveness is then a beautiful thing, isn't it? To think about being in a state as pure, as right, and as holy as it was before I did this dastardly thing of violating God's will. That's what it would mean to be forgiven, to restore that state as it was before. That concept of the word is thus rather profound, isn't it? And sometimes in our world today, the word is misunderstood because of that. Many have a misinterpretation that forgiveness is not what you and I have stated it to be based on the Word of God. To move a little bit further with that thinking, consider with me then what it would mean to discuss that state of affairs when a person does not have that sin. Without sin, isn't it true that a person is deemed holy before God, deemed right in His sight, deemed cleansed and white, if you please? And yet, once that person is guilty of sin, violating God's law, he is marred and tarnished with the blackness and stain of that sin. He has separated himself from God because God, of course, is not where sin is. And yet we see that then to be forgiven would allow you or me to be put back into a position before we were guilty of that sin in terms of the guilt of it. There might well be earthly consequences of that sin we did, but in terms of suffering the eternal guilt of it, we could be back in that state of not having that marked against us. It's been sent away. It's no longer that which, in fact, hinders our approach to being right with God. Would you note with me some truths that are set forth in the New Testament on the nature of this matter of forgiveness? And to move toward that end, we need to look at one word, the word remission. I found it to be interesting in the research for this lesson that the Greek word that is in fact the word that leads to the word remission is in fact the noun form of that same Greek word that in other places is translated forgiveness. So there is a remarkably close relationship between remission of sins on the one hand and forgiveness of sins on the other. In fact, notice some of these passages, if you would. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, that marvelous writer in Hebrews therein said, Without shedding of blood is no remission. It is thus a vital matter that there be the shedding, appropriate shedding of appropriate blood in order to produce and to lead to that which is remission or forgiveness. As you, can I, as you and I can well appreciate, that forgiveness, as you will see nextly, only occurs, according to the Scriptures, by the channel of agency of one person, Jesus the Christ. In Luke 24, verses 46 and following, listen to the marvelous statement of the Great Commission as Luke recorded it for us. On that occasion, Luke recorded these words. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all in one way have this for us, but Luke's version is specifically interesting here. 
He says, thus it is written, and thus it behooved the Son of God to suffer and to, in fact, uh, produce the suffering that he saw. As that came about, what was the result? Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the day of the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Did you note with me that remission was in His name? Whose name? The Son of God. Remission is, in fact, that grand blessing, that forgiveness that is made available to us only through the beautiful character of the Son of God. Later in the New Testament, we notice in Acts 13, 38, that passage we had noticed earlier, that when Paul preached on that first missionary journey, it was, be it known unto you, brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Isn't it interesting again, through this man, Jesus the Christ, no other. For isn't it still true that neither is there salvation in any other? For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. It's no wonder then that we can see the final statement of those truths that I thought it worthy for us to consider. We've seen that it's only through Christ, and we've noticed the shedding of bloods required. That brings us directly, of course, to the blood of Christ. Christ's blood is that which makes forgiveness possible. Didn't the Lord say in Matthew 26, verse 28, as He was on that occasion of instituting the Lord's Supper, he spoke about that new covenant. He said, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And today, as we will shortly surround the Lord's table and again ponder and let our minds return to the scene of the cross, may we again notice Jesus said, This is my blood in the New Testament, which is shed for many. Why, Lord? To what end, Lord? For the forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of His blood, there would be no forgiveness of our sins. Without the pouring forth of His blood, there would be no way to send away those sins, to move them far from us so that we are not burdened beneath the guilt of them, to send away. You might notice yet another passage in Colossians 1.14, which again is stated in Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have forgiveness of sins. In who? In Jesus Christ in the shedding of His blood. It is with those thoughts in mind that we can close that slide, having looked a bit about the definition of it. And in the finality, could we not then say, when you and I are guilty of sin, first and foremost, we transgress God's law. Now, it's true we may offend each other. We may do something that hurts, harms, offends, insults, belittles, or in some way makes it difficult one with another. But first and foremost, our sin is problematic with God, isn't it? It's a violation of His will. We then should not be shocked or surprised when we encounter that there are steps necessary to accomplish that forgiveness. That there are steps necessary for us that we might enjoy the benefits of that forgiveness. What might those steps be? Let's look then at the nature of importance of forgiveness and see if we can pull those together and look at those steps to which we might then refer. How important is it to be forgiven? How important is it that you and I enjoy the forgiveness that God offers? 
Is that something that you and I can take or leave and still be fine from the perspective of eternity? How important is it to forgive each other when someone offends you or me? Those are very good questions. Let's first look at it from this perspective. We are told in Revelation 21:27 that there will be no defilement to enter heaven. None. Not the slightest element. No defilement will enter heaven. In other places, as the word defilement is described, we know it encompasses those transgressions of the will of God. Paul gives an extensive list in Romans 1. Another extensive list in 2 Timothy 3. Another extensive list in Galatians 5. As all of those are presented that defile or that tarnish, we are told there's none of that in heaven, not the slightest element. What that thus suggests is that with regard to any sin, it must be forgiven. Remission must be enjoyed, otherwise there's no hope of entering heaven. Does that not highlight how essential forgiveness is? How important it is that you and I be forgiven by God? You'll notice in the second place, all of us stand guilty of sin. In Romans 3, verse 23, are we not reminded ever so powerfully by the apostle in that language that is simply not capable of being misunderstood? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Hearkening us in mind back to 1 Kings chapter 8, where on that occasion even Solomon admitted, There is no man that sinneth not. In light then of the fact that all of us are guilty of sin, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23, we all are in need of God's forgiveness, and without it, there can be no entrance into heaven. There can be no entrance to that beautiful and eternal abode wherein we'll enjoy the blessedness of heaven forevermore. That alone signifies how important forgiveness is. But perhaps we can look at it in this way as well. Forgiveness? I also asked earlier, how should we forgive others when others offend me? or sin against me. Should I thus look at that as optional? Might we notice that if there's no forgiveness, there'd be no way to reinstate a former state of peacefulness. Remember, the idea of forgiveness is to remake or put in place that state as it existed before the sin, before the transgression. If I'm unwilling to forgive you, if I refuse to forgive you, then that means there could be no putting in place of that state as it existed in peacefulness and harmony as it was before you offended me or as it was before you transgressed against me. Those are very interesting and very good questions. I would ask you to notice what the Lord said about that. Is it necessary for me to forgive you when the appropriate conditions are met? Jesus said this in Matthew 6, he said, if you forgive not men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. May we thus ever see the significance and importance if I am unwilling to forgive a fellow human being who, though transgressing against my person and has expressed a repentance on his part, if I am unwilling to forgive him, God will not forgive me. That the Lord said, and that again is stated for us in that text of Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. It was prefaced by this statement, 
Jesus said, If ye forgive men every man their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye from your hearts are unwilling to forgive men their trespasses against you, then your heavenly Father will also not forgive you your trespasses against him. As those statements were made in Matthew 6, we find very carefully the Lord spoke a parable that explained that. Not many chapters later in Matthew 18. We won't read the fullness of that parable, but I would ask that you consider it with me. Jesus spoke about this gentleman who owed a tremendous sum to a specific king. In fact, it was more than he could ever pay in a lifetime. As you read that text of Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21, we notice that this amount was so great that he couldn't pay it, and he pleaded and begged with the king, with the one taking account, Forgive me, have mercy on me. The king proceeded to forgive that debt. However, he went out, and this other gentleman owed him a much smaller amount. In fact, it was a hundred pence. What did he do? Did he forgive like he had been forgiven? He did not. In fact, he demanded that he be paid that smaller sum and in fact went and threw that man into prison until he had paid the very last amount. However, we notice the parable wasn't ended yet. For when word came to the master of what this servant had done, he then brought him in before him and said, You were forgiven of so much and yet you did not even forgive your brother who owed you so little. The master then commanded, throw him in until he pays the everlasting debt. Notice, as that parable ends, Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. We thus are to have that mindset of being willing, not like that first servant who was unwilling to forgive, but rather we are to be a person who does not do as he does, but has that attitude and willingness to forgive when those appropriate conditions have been met. Forgiveness, we've seen the definition. It involves the sending away of sin. It involves separating from that in the sense of being no more guilty of that state, but reinstating a state of peacefulness. Important, we've seen it's necessary. For if God doesn't forgive us, we can't be saved. Furthermore, if we're unwilling to forgive others, then God won't forgive us. That leads us to the last part of our lesson. What then are the Christian obligations relative to repentance, or rather relative to forgiveness? On this last slide, notice a few of the things that pull together a few of the ideas that we have learned so far this morning. First of all, in regard to forgiveness, that opening statement perhaps goes without saying, but it nonetheless is an important matter. When there has been a separation of two, there can't be a reinstatement of that former state unless both parties wish it to be. If I have offended you, no matter how much I might wish to remake the relationship in friendliness what it once was, if you are unwilling, it can never be what it once was. Never. You see, forgiveness involves the concerted effort on the part of both who have been disenfranchised to bring back that state as it once existed. With that idea in mind, might we ask, in regard to God's forgiveness, does God want to be at peace with you and me? Despite our sin, does He wish to remake that former state as it once was? 
Oh, how much he does. In fact, he wants to remake that former state so much, he sent his son to die for us. Notice these passages in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does God want to be at friendly, on friendly terms with us? He doesn't want anybody to be lost. He wants all to be saved. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Speaking again of God, he says, Who would have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? So in terms of desiring that state of peacefulness, God lovingly and powerfully wishes it. That now makes the fact we should ask about our condition. Does, does the human family want to be at peace with God? Some do, but many don't. Jesus spoke about that, didn't he, in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. There are many who have no interest in what the Son of God brought to bear. There are many who are not interested in the church. There are many who really are not deeply concerned about implementing the Word of God in their life. And they will even admit sometimes as much. But this much, certainly the Bible tells us, that there is a wide way that leads to destruction, and many there be that are traveling it. But there is a narrow way, a straightened way that leads into life everlasting, and few there be that find it. You'll notice Jesus said there are many who are not going to be saved, despite the fact God wants all men to be saved. That simply means, doesn't it, that there are so many who do not want to be at peace with God by virtue of implementing the Word of God. Didn't John write for us in 1 John 2, verse 4, in terms of knowing God, he said, those that say, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Despite what then a person might say, if he's not following this, if he's not doing the commands that God has set forth, he doesn't know God. And thus, with that lack of knowledge, and in that failure to implement and obey, that person will not be forgiven. That person will not stand in a right relationship. His sins have not been sent away. But perhaps notice yet another point. What then are the conditions for forgiveness? What should you and what should I do in order to enjoy that forgiveness of sins? And this is a vitally important point. There are many perhaps in our world who would state many and sundry supposed conditions for forgiveness I might suggest to you, we really ought not to care less what they think. If God's the one that must do the forgiving, isn't it His prerogative, and isn't it His right to specify what are the terms on which I will forgive? Well, sure it's His prerogative. What right do I have to tell God on what basis He ought to forgive my sins? After all, I'm the one that's violated His will. It's not that He violated mine. And so it is that he needs to dictate to me, and he has done so, what, Randy, you must do in order for me to forgive your sins. And apart from me doing that, there shall be no forgiveness, period. And the same is true of any other person in the human family, isn't it? What are these conditions? Perhaps we might well begin in the Old Testament. As we ponder the nature of what took place in Second Chronicles chapter 7, only one verse out of that will, will encompass our attention for a moment. Listen to this interesting statement. If my people, which are called by my name, 
shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will hear their land. That was an inspired penman. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Ancient Israel found itself in some very difficult situations, didn't it? Solomon knew that was going to happen. And on that occasion, as he made that statement, if this people, when they're in sin, will come to humble themselves before what God has proclaimed, they will repent of those sins. God said, I'll forgive them. Notice there was an if. God wouldn't just automatically forgive. They first had to humble themselves. They needed to, in fact, recognize the need for repentance of those sins. Then and only then would God forgive them. That repentance is, in fact, highlighted in one other statement in that same verse. Notice he said, turn from their wicked ways. We learned last Lord's Day morning that that's the heart and core of repentance, isn't it? That change of action that's brought about by the change in mind. We notice in the Old Testament, in that passage, as well as Psalm 86, verse 5, repentance is stated to be a condition for forgiveness. Perhaps those two passages lead us to ask about the New Testament. What are the conditions then for which God will forgive you and me? Is repentance still required? Notice with me these passages. In Luke 17, verse 3, the lesson text that Brother Adam read for us earlier, he said, If thy brother sin against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Notice there's an if again that's, that is being made used in that, in that passage. If he repents, you forgive him. You'll notice that even then in our relationships one with another, there's the necessity of repentance. If I have wronged you, and if I refuse to repent of it, you cannot forgive me by putting in place that relationship as it once existed. For I'm not interested in having it remade, apparently, because I haven't repented. However, if I, in earnestness, come to you and recognize in humility that I've wronged you, that I have made a mistake, I have sinned against you and against God, and I beg your forgiveness... Might we now notice that according to the Scriptures, if you are to be as God would have you to be, you must forgive me. For again, notice earlier we learned if you're unwilling to forgive me, then God's unwilling to forgive you. You might ask, well, how often can that happen? What if I wrong you, and then next week I wrong you again, and next month I do it again? Peter asked that question, didn't he, in Matthew 18. He said, if my brother sinned against me seven times, how oft should I forgive him? In fact, Peter, as he asked that question, then he asked it until seven times. But notice what was the Lord's answer. Was it only seven times? Is that all I am obligated to forgive you if you wrong me? Or all that you're obligated to forgive me if I wrong you? Jesus said, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And the Lord wasn't issuing this limit of 490, was he? That's one of those figurative languages that asserts to us that we, like God, as often as you and I repent and turn to God as commanded, he will forgive us. I ought to be willing to do that as many times as you in humility 
and in repentance will come and beseech my forgiveness of you. Forgiveness. It's a beautiful concept, isn't it? Perhaps one more passage, and then the lesson will be yours this morning. In our thinking about forgiveness, one might ask, what about the Lord's forgiveness of those who murdered him? After all, that Friday came, Jesus was crucified on that occasion. Jesus did pray, didn't he? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, verse 34. There was the Lord suspended between heaven and earth, and he had enough consideration for those who, in fact, had just put him to death or were in the process of it. He pleaded. He prayed for. He spoke about their forgiveness. When were they forgiven? I would ask you to turn with me some 50 days later to the day of Pentecost. Here was a group of Jewish individuals gathered on that occasion. And as they were therein gathered, Peter preached unto them the first gospel sermon in which he directly said, You have put to death and crucified the Son of God. However, death couldn't hold him, verse 24. Up from the grave he arose, and as the lesson closed, Peter then made this statement. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. What did they next say then? They said, What shall we do? Do about what? They came to appreciate apparently that they were encumbered with the guilt of sin, but the Lord prayed for their forgiveness 50 days before. Why didn't they say, well, Peter, we were forgiven 50 days ago. We no longer are subject to the guilt of that sin of putting Jesus to death. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I'd submit to you they weren't forgiven until they repented. Then and only then, in response to the prerequisites of forgiveness upon their repentance and turning to God in faithful obedience, were they forgiven of the sin of putting the Son of God to death. As we well know, only around 3,000 were present then that responded. How many were present that didn't? How many then did not receive forgiveness for what they'd done? Today, what about your life and mine? Do you stand forgiven before God? Have you, in fact... Believe Jesus to be the Son of God and repented of the sins in your life. We notice that confession in 1 John 1 verse 9 is also stated as a public matter affirming the nature of what change is wrought in our life. Today, if you have not attended to these matters, why do you delay? Jesus shed His blood that you might be forgiven. If you have done that, but you have lapsed back into a world of sin... Notice the same words that were stated to Simon in Acts 8 should also be said to you. When he found himself guilty of sin, this is what Peter told him, Repent, that thou mayest be forgiven of this, the iniquity of thine heart. Notice again, repentance preceded forgiveness. You need to again repent of these sins in your life, and brethren will pray with you and for you. If we could help doing any of that today, it would be our privilege we would only ask that you let us know in what way we could be of assistance while together we stand and while we sing.